Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. It is Friday, November 4th, 2011. The good news I received today was that the first copies of Christreich shipped from Lulu. I hope to receive them Monday or Tuesday, and as soon as I do, as long as they're okay, I'm sure they will be, uh, I will make an announcement and send out a mailing. Explaining and and a link saying that my book is um, my, my book on my revelation commentary is for sale. It, it's twenty six dollars in hardcover. It's a little more money than I wanted it to be, but Lulu and inflation and Uncle Sam, I guess, had different plans. Within the next two weeks, I pray there'll there'll be a soft cover available. In the next three weeks, maybe there'll, there'll be a soft cover available, and that will be probably, um, if not half the price, I'm sure it'll be close. Okay, this is Mark chapters 8 and 9, and before I start, I'd like to say that um, next week I won't be here. I'll be off to see my son in Virginia. I will have, um, there there will be programs next week. I I probably shouldn't announce it because I don't want to put the pressure on him, but Matthew Ott will be filling in for me on Friday. It will be his first program on TalkShoe. And I'm sure he'll do well. On Saturday, I um, my Saturday plans are still up in the air. I, I haven't had a definitive answer. I hope to have a, a substitute program that day. If I don't have a substitute, I will do a program. I, I won't just leave people um, without anywhere to go on a Saturday night and no date. Uh, okay, this is um, Mark chapters 8 and 9. Discussing Mark... Last week, I had made a radical comment concerning the blood brothers of Christ, that some of them were apostles. And here, I will go over that again because it is something that has not been discussed sufficiently. And due to a few inquiries that I received, perhaps some people did not understand what I said. What I'm about to present it is not new. I mean, other people have been led to believe this in in certain um, academic circles. It's crystal clear once you put away the agendas and believe the scripture and and take it for what it says. I mean, I don't know. People keep having to invent their own Bibles because they can't deal with the Bible we have. The Bible we have is pretty simple. It's really not that difficult a book once you believe what it says. The list of apostles at Mark 3 and Matthew 10 agree. Simon Peter, James the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James, Andrew, who's actually the brother of Simon Peter, Philip Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Lebahius Thaddeus, and I call him Lebahius Thaddeus because in one book he's called Lebahius and in another book he's called Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot. In Luke chapter 6, now now let's understand that Matthew was there. Mark received his gospel directly from Peter, and Peter was there. Luke was not there, and he received his gospel from we don't know who. I mean, Luke told us that 
he received his gospel from eyewitnesses. We don't know when, where, how. We're, we're just not told that information. We believe that the witnesses are sound. The gospel of Luke certainly is sound. And it's the most historical exact, historically exacting of all the Gospels. In Luke chapter 6, there was a James mentioned with John, who must be that same brother and son of Zebedee mentioned in Matthew and Mark, John and James being the sons of Zebedee. Yet in Luke's list, the Bahias Thaddeus, who was only mentioned twice, once each in the original list of apostles in Matthew and Mark, the Bahias Thaddeus is not mentioned at all in Luke's Gospel, and he seems to have dropped from sight because he is never mentioned again. To fill out the twelve, Judas, the brother of James, is mentioned in his place. In Luke's account in Acts, we see Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Andrew was Peter's brother and James was John's brother, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Simon the Canadian, and Judah the brother of James. That's Acts 1.13. The lists in Matthew and Mark being quite early in Christ's ministry, Labahius Thaddeus must have dropped out at some point for some reason, and Jude, the brother of James, filled the list out to 12 again when Luke made his lists. Real simple. In Mark 6.3, we read where the people of Christ's hometown are said to have exclaimed, and I quote, is this not the craftsman, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? We see the brothers of Christ are mentioned. Among them are James and Judah, who's called Jude in most Bibles, to distinguish him from the famous traitor. These are the authors of those epistles, which we know as James and Jude, in the New Testaments, which we have today. Paul tells us of James' apostleship in Galatians 1.19, where he states that the James who he knew in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21 are the, are the things that he's referencing. He said that that was James the Lord's brother, as the King James has it. In the epistle of Jude, the apostle opens it by calling himself servant of Joshua Christ and brother of James. These two men were considered, considered apostles, but Jude was not among the original twelve named in Mark chapter 3 or in Matthew chapter 6. The list of 11 apostles at Acts 1.13 includes James and Jude, and these are the brethren of Christ. In Luke's lists, Jude, the brother of James, must be Jude, the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus, must be that James who is the Lord's brother, as Paul confirms in Galatians 1.19. Therefore, one may 
ascertain that Mary, the mother of Christ, not only had more children after she gave birth to Christ, but that she had them with a man named Alphaeus, who was apparently not the same man as that Joseph whom she was married to when Christ was born. As I said last week, this is controversial and intriguing, yet it certainly seems to be true. Churchmen, so far as I know, have not been able to get this right for these past 2,000 years, mostly due to the Romish ideology, the Catholic Church ideology, concerning the perpetual virginity of Mary, the mother of Christ. Yet it is clear from the scripture that Mary, a young virgin when Christ was conceived, had many children later in life. All of this demonstrates how easily an agenda blinds us from the truth. With that, I'll begin Mark chapter 8. Verse 1. I see some people in the chat have lost some audio. I hope it's not me. In those days, again, upon a great, a great crowd being present and not having anything which they could eat, summoning his students, meaning Christ, he says to them, I am deeply moved to the crowd because already they have remained with me for three days and they do not have anything which they may eat. And if I let them go away to their house fasting, they shall faint on the road and some of them have come from far off. And his students replied to him that from where is one able to feed so many bread here in a desert place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he commands the crowd to recline upon the ground, and taking the seven loaves, giving thanks, he broke and gave them to his students that they would serve, and they served them to the crowd. And they had a few fish, and blessing them, he said to those, serve those also. And they ate and were filled. And there were seven creels, fishing baskets, of excess fragments, and they were about 4,000 and he released them. Here the miracle of Christ demonstrates to us that he is the bread of life, which he himself describes in John chapter 6. The miracle itself cannot be sufficiently explained, and therefore I will not attempt to do so, except to assert that if our God has no efficacy in the world, then man has no hope of overcoming the natural world and that 400 generations of our ancestors had prayed and died in vain. The feeding of the 5,000, which was seen in Mark chapter 6, is an event attested to in all four Gospels. This feeding of the 4,000 is reported only here in Mark 8 and in Matthew chapter 15. Many Christians look for meaning in the symbolism of the numbers given in these accounts. I would assert that doing so always leads one off into the mysticism and makes one prone to error, the mysticism of the Kabbalah and, and other such things. It is much more important to understand the plain word of Scripture first. There is a stronger symbolism in the event itself. The people cared not for food. While they heard Christ 
preach for three days. Then he fed them before they departed. Some early Christian writers, and rightfully, I believe, imagine this to represent the three days of the death of res- and resurrection of Christ. And in any case, we do see that there were people avid enough to receive his instruction that they could neglect their bellies for three days. Verse 10, And immediately, boarding into a vessel with his students, he came into the parts of Dalmanutha. Matthew calls this place Magadan in his gospel. It is esteemed to be the same as that place familiarly known as Magdala on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking by him a sign from heaven, trying him. And bemoaning in his spirit, he says, Why does this race, the word is genos, why does this race seek a sign? I'm sorry, the word is genea. It's a a, a synonym with the same root. Truly I say to you, whether a sign shall be given to this race. And leaving them, boarding again, he departed for the other side. The language, whether a sign shall be given, seems to be a Hebraism with a negative connotation, as Paul also used it in the epistle to the Hebrews concerning God's rest withheld from the children of Israel in the days of Joshua. Christ had performed a miracle in the feeding of the 4,000 men from a few loaves of bread and some fish. Therefore, rendering the Greek word genea, which is the word rendered generation, Rendering that word asgenea is certainly not proper as it is understood in our language today. The meaning of the word must be race. And Christ is therefore distinguishing the race of his adversaries, those who questioned him, from the race of those for whom he did perform such miracles, such as the 4,000 people that he said in the wilderness. That was a sign for them, I'm certain. At Matthew 16.4, the response of Christ is recorded more fully. A wicked and adulterous race seeks a sign, and a sign shall not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Verse 14. And they forgot to take bread, and except for one loaf, they did not have it with them in the vessel. And he commanded them, saying, Look, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herodas, or Herod. Some manuscripts, including a third century papyri known as P45, have Herodians rather than Herodas, which may well be a legitimate reading. And they debated with one another because they do not have bread. And knowing it, he says to them, Why do you debate? Because you do not have bread. Not yet do you perceive nor understand. Do you have a hardening of your hearts? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when the five loaves had been broken for the 5,000, how many baskets of fragments you took? They say to him, twelve. When the seven for the 4,000, how many creels full of fragments you took? And they say to him, seven. And he said to them, how do you not understand? 
The apostles themselves had a hard time distinguishing the literal from the allegorical. And most Christians still have a hard time with that same thing today. The leaven of the Pharisees, of course, represented the alien ideas which are sown in among whatever truths they also upheld. Several weeks ago, in a discussion of Matthew, it was pointed out here that part of the leaven of the Pharisees, according to Flavius Josephus, the historian, and his description of the Pharisees, was that the Pharisees believed that good boys, no matter who they were, went to heaven, and bad boys, no matter who they were, burned in hell. We can read the Old Testament and see that that is entirely fallacious. All of the children of Israel shall be in heaven. Everyone who is not a son or daughter of God is going to the lake of fire. Verse 22, and they came into Bethsaida, and they bring to him a blind man and exhort him in order that he would touch him. And taking the hand of the blind man, he brought him outside of the town, and having spat in his eyes, putting the hands upon him, asked him if, do you see anything? I know that Mark's Greek is, is, is difficult in parts. However, my translation is as literal as it possibly could be. And looking up, he said, I see men, that is, trees, I see walking. Then again, he put the hands upon his eyes, and he stared, and was restored, and looked at all things clearly. And he sent them to his house, saying, Now you should not enter into the town. Just as the feeding of the people after three days has a deeper meaning, which symbolizes the true bread of life, which is Christ, giving life to the children of Israel. After three days, this healing of the blind man, who then sees men as trees walking, also has a deeper symbolic meaning. Throughout Scripture, trees represent races of people. And when Christians open their eyes to that fact, they too can be healed from their blindness. Verse 27. And as Joshua went out and his students into the town... of Caesarea Philippi, or Philippus. And on the road, he questioned his students, saying to them, What do men say for me to be? And they spoke to him, saying that John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But what do you say for me to be? Responding, Peter says to him, You are the Christ. And he admonished them that they should speak to no one concerning him. Caesarea Philippi was about 20 miles north of Galilee. It's a long walk from the Sea of Galilee. Before Roman times, it was called Panaeus from the worship of the Greek name for the goat-footed pagan idol, Pan. 
Caesarea Philippi was at the south, southern foot of Mount Hermon, the northern limit of Joshua's conquest, and a famous place of ancient Canaanite idolatry. It, it can be revealed in that, even though there was a famous temple of Pan there. And I believe that Pan, the goat-footed idol of the Greeks, certainly has an eastern origin, like all of the idols of the Greeks, and that can be established. We see that Pan, of course, fittingly, quite fittingly, started with the Canaanites. Here in Mark, which is Peter's Gospel account, the discourse is presented quite modestly. And the response of Christ to Peter's attestation is omitted. In Matthew, it is recorded that Christ said to Peter, Blessed you are, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I say to you that you are a stone, which is what Peter means, which is the word Petros. Yet upon this bedrock, which is Petra in Greek, shall I build my assembly, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I shall give to you the little keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and he whom you should bind upon the earth shall be bound in the heavens, and he whom you should release upon the earth shall be released in the heavens. I have an aside here. I received some criticism a few weeks ago from a fool who tried to um, scold me for using the word Hades, H-A-D-E-S, which was the proper Greek name for the underworld in my translation. He said that I should use hell, H-E-L-L. I have some news for him. Hades is the word which Joshua Christ uttered in reference to the same idea that we see encompassed in the Hebrew word Sheol, the underworld abode of the dead, where the spirits of the dead are kept. And before Christ, that was true, as we see in the second epistle of Peter, and in the first epistle of Peter. To use the word hell, we are also using the name of a pagan idol. Our ancient Germanic ancestors called that same place where the, which the Hebrews called Sheol and which the Greeks called Hades, they called it Niflheim. The Greeks originally called it, if you look at the Homeric poetry, Tartarus. And in the Homeric in the Homeric poetry and, and in the epic cycle, Hades was the god, the overlord of Tartarus, the abode of the dead. In the Germanic literature, Hela was a goddess, or was perceived to be a goddess. Of course, she isn't real. Hela was a goddess who was the lord of the underworld, which was called Niflheim. So just like the Greeks transferred the name of their idol to be synonymous with the name of the place, and eventually dropped the word Tartarus in favor of the word Hades, which was originally the name of the god, our Germanic ancestors eventually substituted the name of the goddess, the idol, Hela, 
for the place which was called Niflheim. So whether you use the word Hades or you use the word hell, you're referring to a pagan idol. And I really hope that the clown that tried to scold me on that goes back and studies that and does his homework. No, I didn't take very well to it. He'll know who I mean. Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to instruct them that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. And to be rejected by the elders and the high priests and the scribes, and to be put to death. And after three days to be resurrected. And he spoke the word openly. And taking him aside, Petros began to admonish him. But he, turning and seeing his students, admonished Petros and says, Go behind me, adversary, because you do not mind the things of Yahweh, but the things of men. Christ warned the apostles several times what would happen to him, and they were still surprised by it when it happened. There is much evidence in Scripture and in history that men will believe only what men want to believe, even if it comes from the mouth of God. This passage is famous because Christ is seen to have called Peter in the King James, as the King James renders it, Satan. Yet the word here is not a substantive. A substantive is a verb or an adjective that's usually not a noun that in Greek and in Hebrew is used with a definite article to be a noun, to be equivalent to a noun. Here the word doesn't have the definite article. And the word satanus in Hebrew is simply an adjective. And Christ, with Peter disputing with Christ, Peter's disputation makes Peter Christ's adversary. And that's what Christ is calling him. Get behind me, adversary, because Peter is being adversarial to him, telling him that it ought to be different when Christ knows what the word of God is and what has to become of him, right? So Peter's disputing with Christ makes Peter his adversary and not a Satan or the Satan with a capital S. There's a huge difference. As the word is commonly perceived by many of today's Christians. Mark 8, verse 34. And summoning the crowd with the students, he said to them, If one wishes to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he who should desire to save his life shall lose it. And he who would lose his life because of me and the good message shall save it. For what shall it benefit a man to gain the whole society or the whole world and for his life to be lost? For what could a man give in exchange for his life? And, of course, Christ is talking about our permanent 
life in the spirit. For whoever should be ashamed of me and my words among this adulterous and sinful race, they were a race mixed people, remember. There were many Edomites among them. Also the Son of Man shall be ashamed of him when he should come in the honor of his Father with the holy messengers. This is probably the most important Christian concept. If one wishes to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What did Christ do? He gave up his life for his race. He gave up his life for the children of Israel, as explicitly stated in the prophets for nobody else. We read from John chapter 10 that Christ said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. Here I'm going to read a few quotes from another source, and then I'll briefly discuss that source. The sacrifice of the individual existence is necessary. In order to assure the conservation of the race, hence it is that the most essential condition for the establishment and maintenance of the state is a certain feeling of solidarity wounded in an identity of character and race and in a resolute readiness to defend these at all costs. The second quote, the right to personal freedom. Oh, this is one that we, we don't want to hear today. The right to personal freedom comes second in importance to the duty of maintaining the race. No, Sally, you can't date the porch monkey. The third quote, the readiness to sacrifice one's personal work and, if necessary, even one's life for others shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. The greatness of the Aryan is not based on his intellectual powers, but rather on his willingness to devote all his faculties to the service of the community. Here the instinct for self-preservation has reached its noblest form. For the Aryan willingly subordinates his own ego to the common wheel. That same phrase from which we get the word commonwealth. Many of our own states were founded as commonwealths. When necessity calls, he will even sacrifice his own life. the community. Again, I quote, 
In the German language, you probably have it by now, right? In the German language, we have a word which admirably expresses this underlying spirit of all work. I'm going to destroy this word. <laughs> it is Flichterflung, which means the service of the common wheel before the consideration of one's own interests. The fundamental spirit out of which this kind of activity springs is the contradistinction of egotism, which the Jew promotes throughout all our societies. And we call it idealism. By this we mean to signify the willingness of the individual to make sacrifices for the community and his fellow men. To this kind of mentality, the Aryan owes his position in the world. And the world is indebted to the Aryan mind for having developed the concept of mankind. Surely the beasts never had that. For it is out of this spirit alone that the creative force has come, which in a unique way combined robust muscular power with the first-class intellect and thus created the monuments of human civilization. The last quote. The man who loves his nation can prove the sincerity of this sentiment only by being ready to make sacrifices for the nation's welfare. There is no such thing as a national sentiment which is directed towards one's personal interests. And there is no such thing as a nationalism that embraces only certain classes. Cheering proves nothing and does not confer the right to call oneself national. If behind that shout there is no sincere preoccupation for the conservation of the nation's well-being. These quotes come from Adolf Hitler from Mein Kampf. Adolf Hitler understood the words of Christ. That those who seek to follow him must follow his example and devote their lives to the well-being of the race. Adolf Hitler did just that standing in defiance of world Jewry and their debt slavery monetary system, just as Christ died at the hands of the Romans and at the instigation of the Jew. America and Britain destroyed Adolf Hitler and National Socialist Germany at the instigation of those same 
Jews. We have we as a people follow Christ in this, slaying our German brethren on behalf of the Antichrist Jew bastards. Of course we have not. And look today at this multicultural mess which we are embroiled in, where we are overrun with Orientals and Arabs and Mestizos and Blacks. This is our reward for doing the work of the real Satan, world Jewry. Today we reap what our grandparents have sown. Yahweh our God foresaw all of this. He, he foresaw all of this, and when we ever repent, we have a promise that he will save us from it. But repentance, repentance must be preceded by a recognition of one's sin. To repeat those last verses of chapter 8, and summoning the crowd with his students, he said to them, If one wishes to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For he who should desire to save his life shall lose it. And he who would lose his life because of me and the good message, the gospel, shall save it. For what shall it benefit a man to gain the whole society and for his life to be lost? For what could a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever should be ashamed of me and my words among this adulterous and sinful race, also the Son of Man shall be ashamed of him when he should come in the honor of his Father with the holy messengers. Or angels. Yahshua Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yahweh said of Israel at Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Joshua says in Revelation chapter 20 at verse 15, And if one is not found written in the book of life, he is cast into the lake of fire. I challenge somebody to show me a Negro in the book of life. Only the children of Israel are found written in that book which must be the gospel, since Christ is the word of life. Since Christ is the word of life, as John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel, his gospel must be the book of life. Since the word is implanted into the children of Israel, as the prophets and the apostles attest, then Israel and Israel alone is written into the book and the book is also written into Israel. 
If one is ashamed of that, he has no part with Christ and will most likely follow the beast of the field into the lake of fire. We devote our lives to our own race and to hell with everybody else, literally. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, that there are some of those standing here whom shall by no means taste of death until when they should see the kingdom of Yahweh having come with power. I don't take that to mean that they're going to die when the kingdom comes. That's their guarantee to eternal life. The same exclamation appears at the end of Matthew chapter 16, and the beginning of Matthew chapter 17 records the event known as the Transfiguration on the Mount, which also follows here. In this event, we see the physical appearance of Moses, whose death was recorded in Deuteronomy, and whose body was buried in the land of Moab, and of Elijah, who is said to have not to have died, but to have been taken away, as Enoch also was. So while it is evident that these men may not, and, and from our perspective should not be with us in body, that does not mean that they died as we perceive death to be. Mark chapter 9 is going to be a quite esoteric chapter. To taste of death is to experience death. And it's our spirit, which is also what we may call our psyche or consciousness, and that is the Greek word translated spirit, psyche. If our spirit departs from our body before it dies, have we actually experienced death? Such is the hope of Christianity. Paul talks of that promise of life in Christ when he says in Romans 8, verse 2, Indeed, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Yahshua has liberated you from the law of sin and death. In 1 John, in the epistle, chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle says that, and I quote, We know that we have passed over from out of death into life because we love the brethren. He not loving, he not loving his brother, abides in death. The promise is stated as a matter of fact. Remember the words in Mark chapter 8, which we just read, concerning the love and the sacrifice a man must show for his race, which is his nation. Nationalism is 100% racist. The promise of life removes our fear of death. And we gladly sacrifice our own lives on behalf of our kindred. This is how all of our ancient ancestors lived. And this is why so many of those great Germanic warriors in the past had no fear of death. They knew that it would bring life. At the end of this chapter, 
of Mark, we will see again that upon death, we shall indeed enter into life, if indeed we are children of God. And after six days, Yahshua takes Peter and Jacob and John and brings them up into a high mountain by themselves alone. And he was transformed before them, and his garments became glistening, exceedingly white, such that no cloth dresser upon the earth is able thusly to whiten. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were conversing with Yahshua. And responding, Peter says to Yahshua, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and we shall make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he should respond, for they were frightened. And there was a cloud overshadowing them, and there was a voice from out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, you hear him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone except Yahshua alone standing with them. There is more to this existence than what we currently perceive. And if we love our brethren and care for our race, we shall indeed overcome this world. And upon their descending from the mountain, he commanded them, that they should not describe to anyone the things which they had seen, except when a son of man should arise from among the dead. And they held this account to themselves, disputing what it was to arise from among the dead. We still dispute over what it is to arise from among the dead. In the book of Job, the patriarch exclaims, in the 19th chapter, and I quote from verse 26, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that we are sown a physical body. And we are raised a spiritual body. He exclaims, he explains that if there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Of course, Paul is talking about the body of a Adamic man, which Yahweh our God breathed his spirit into, as we have it explained in Genesis, in simple rudimentary terms. That spirit if we are sown a physical body and raised a spiritual body, that spirit is produced by the same DNA which created the physical body. And I must add that if your DNA is broken, then you are a broken cistern, and your body cannot hold that spirit. Your DNA produces a wicked spirit. a corrupt spirit. The Apostle John says in his epistle that if your seed is within you, you cannot die because you have been born of God, because you have that spirit which comes from Yahweh our God. 
as all Adamic men have. So we see in the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 23, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If you are an Adamic man made in the image of God, and if your seed is in you, meaning that you are not race mixed, then you shall indeed live forever. If your seed is in you, you have that spiritual body and the promise that it will indeed return to this physical world. The Christian, because he is assured eternal life, wants to love his brethren and obey his God. Mark 9, verse 11. And they questioned him, saying that the scribes say that it is necessary for Elijah to come first. Then he said to them, Indeed, Elijah coming restores all things. Yet how, it is, how is it written for the Son of Man that he would suffer many things and would be despised? But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did with him whatever they wished, just as it is written for him. Elijah here is used as an allegory. Christ is talking of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah. But John the Baptist was not Elijah himself, whom we just saw described as having appeared in the transfiguration on the mount, where he was not identified as John the Baptist, a man whom the apostles knew in person. There is another promise of the spirit of Elijah coming yet to be fulfilled. And that is stated at the end of the prophecy of Malachi in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It is the only promise in the prophets of an Elijah who is yet to come. And Christ says here that Elijah shall come in the future. He says... But I say to you that Elijah has come. I'm sorry. He says, indeed, Elijah coming first restores all things. That means it's going to happen yet in his future. Understanding this prophecy, we can understand exactly what is meant by the restoration of all things. There's a lot of so-called Israel identity pastors who think that somehow the restoration of all things includes the other races, includes aliens, whatever you want to call them, beasts of the field. It's simply not true. It only includes the children of Israel. Here from Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I shall read, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. Sounds like the prophecy concerning Esau and Obadiah. And all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, as Esau shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, sounds like the lake of fire, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor 
branch. That is the restoration of those who were not born of God. Burning up in a lake of fire, they shall be restored to nothingness where they came from. Verse 2. But unto you to fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, which, as I've said before, is a description of the ancient Aryan phoenix symbol. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves in a stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, as Micah 4 says, arise Zion and thresh. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. It's evident they, they are not going back to Mexico or back to China or back to Africa. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and dreadful day of Yahweh, the day of judgment. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. If this is the only prophecy of an Elijah which is to come, and Christ says that Elijah is yet to come to restore all things, then the restoration of all things is only a restoration of all the things written concerning Yahweh and his relationship with the true children of Israel, since that is what we were told that this Elijah would do. It is our hope that we see the beginning of this fulfilled today in this Christian Israel identity message. Only Christian identity seeks to return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. The racial message of the covenants of God. The children being the white Adamic heirs of the kingdom of God. Aliens shall not inhabit that kingdom. There is no promise to restore all things to anyone but the children of Israel. Aliens, beasts, beasts of the field, they don't need to be restored. The children of Satan, they don't need to be restored, except to ashes. Mark 9, verse 14. And coming with the students, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. And immediately all the crowd seeing him had been amazed and running up, they greeted him. And he asked them, why do you dispute with them? So many of us who learn the message of the kingdom wish to vainly dispute it with the enemy. We have no reason to ever be compelled to explain ourselves to the enemies of our God. We have no reason to go on Negro talk shoes to try to teach beasts the gospel. Verse 17. And one from out of the crowd replied to him, Teacher, I brought my son to you having a speechless spirit. And wherever it should seize him, it knocks him down, and he foams and gnashes the teeth and wastes away. And I spoke to your students in order that they would cast it out, and they were not able. Then responding, he says to them, O oh, faithless race, until when shall I be with you? A statement of exa exasperation. Until when must I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought him to him. And seeing him, the spirit immediately convulsed him, and falling upon the ground, he wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how much time is it that it has done this to him? And he said, from childhood. And often also it casts him into the fire and into the water in order that it would destroy him. But if you can do anything, help us being deeply moved for us. This seems to me to be a description of our entire race today, dumb and wallowing in the mud while awaiting their redemption. We imagine that they can never be brought to their senses, but all things are possible with God. Verse 23, But Yahshua said to him, What if you are able? All things are possible for he who believes. John 14:12 says, Truly I say to you, he believing in me, the works which I do, he shall also do, and he shall do greater than these, because I go to the Father, and we await that day. Immediately crying out, the father of the youth said, I believe, help me with disbelief. Then Yahshua, seeing that the crowd runs together, admonished the unclean spirit, saying to it, Speechless and dumb spirit, I command you, come out from him and enter into him no longer. And crying out and convulsing much, it came out, and he was as if dead. So for many to say that he died, but Yahshua holding his hand raised him, and he arose. And upon his entering into a house, his students by themselves questioned him, for what had we not been able to cast it out? And he said to them, this kind by no one is able to cast out, except with prayer. Likewise, only God can heal our national idiocy today. This represents to me the state of our people before their own awakening. Most of them, worshipping Jews and beasts, are blathering idiots indeed. The message of the gospel is timeless. Verse 30, And having departed from there, they went along through Galilee, and he did not wish that anyone should know, for he instructed his students and said to them that the Son of Man is handed over into the hands of men, and they slay him, and dying after three days he shall arise. But they did not perceive the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. He showed that he was careful not to let his murder be attempted differently than what was written. His companions, the apostles, did not want to face the truth which he was telling them. Another trait that we see in our people today. And they came into Capernaum, and being in the house, he questioned them. Why did you dispute in the road? But they were silent, for they had argued with one another in the road, who is greater? And sitting, he called the twelve, and he says to them, If one wishes to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. And taking a child, he stood him in the midst of them, and putting his arm around him, said to them, Whoever should receive one of these such children, upon whom is my name, meaning that they have to be Christian children, receives me. And whoever would receive me, receives not me, but he who has sent me. The scriptures are quite profound in many ways. What vanity this passage would betray if it had fallen into oblivion. Would men reporting falsely 
make themselves into such fools. Rather, the providence of God clearly foresaw that we would indeed be reading this today. Thus we see that they were disputing as to who would be the greater of the apostles of Christ, and Christ corrects them. The Christian aspiration is to please God, and we please God by serving our brethren. We invite the wrath of God by elevating ourselves above our brethren. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and prevented him, because he is not followed with us. Then Yahshua said, You must not forbid him, for there is no one who shall do a feat of power by my name and shall be able to quickly speak bad of me. For he whom is not against us is with us. Those who do wonderful things in the name of Christ, even if they do not know the word as well as you know the word, will nevertheless exalt the word. Do not think that you have a monopoly on the truth, on the word of God. Do not view those who share your faith as competitors and view them as fellow workers. Mark 9, verse 41. For whoever would give to you a drink, to drink a cup of water in the name that you were of Christ, truly I say to you that by no means shall he lose his reward. And in the rather warm, dry climate of Palestine, a cup of cold water was a valuable commodity. And he shall, who shall entrap one of these little ones who believes in me? It is good for him if rather a millstone is tied around his neck and he is cast into the sea. So go all of the Jewish perverts and child molesters. And if your hand should entrap you, cut it off. It is good for you to enter into life crippled than having two hands to depart into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot entraps you, cut it off. It is good for you to enter into life lame than having two feet to be cast into Gehenna. And if your eye should entrap you, take it out. It is good for you with one eye to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Only the first part of this discourse is reported by Matthew, where in chapter 10, verse 42, it says, And he who would give one of these little ones a single cup of cold water to drink in the name of a student, a disciple. Truly I say to you, by no means should he lose his reward. In other words, do the least to take care of your brethren, and you will not lose your reward. A similar discourse by Yahshua given at another time is recorded in Matthew chapter 18 and also in Luke 17. Notice that Christ here said that one should rather enter into life crippled 
than to suffer the fires of Gehenna. This reinforces what was said earlier in this chapter, that when they die, Christians enter into life. Death for Christians is the joy. It is the gate to life. Gehenna, the land of Hinnom of the Old Testament, is where anciently children were passed through the fire and sacrificed to the pagan idol Moloch. In the Roman period, it is often said that Gehenna is the place where the city, Jerusalem, burned its trash. Apparently, Gehenna is an allegory for the lake of fire. The King James Version here at verses 44 and 46 has text which reads also in verse 48, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. While these words do appear in the Greek at verse 48, verses 44 and 46 do not appear in the oldest original Greek manuscripts, except for the codices Bezai and Alexandrinus. Once again, it is evident that the majority text follows closely the Alexandrian tradition. Nevertheless, this phrase at verse 48 does appear here, although it only appears in the Gospel of Mark and not in the other Gospels. However, it still appears nevertheless, right? The word in Greek for worm is skolex, and it is just that. A skolex is a worm. The Hebrew word, where this is a quote from Isaiah 66, 24, has a similar definition. It is also the name of a scarlet-colored dye once made from certain worms, but the basic definition is a worm. In the context where it refers to a worm, it is used in Hebrew as an allegory. It's an allegory for insignificance in Psalm 22.6 and at Isaiah 41.14. It is an allegory for decay in Job 25.6. Because decay, with the decay of a body, come worms. The phrase here, which Christ quotes in, in Mark 9.48. The phrase is a quote from Isaiah chapter 66. And to understand the context here in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 19 through 24 will be read. And I quote from the King James, And I will set a sign among them. This is talking about the dispersed of Israel. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. To Tarshish, pull in Lud, that draws the bow. To Tubal and Javan. To the isles afar off, that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto Yahweh out of all nations upon horses and in chariots, and in litters, and upon mules, and upon swift beasts, 
to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, not meaning the fiscal Jerusalem, but meaning the seat of government of his people wherever they are at the time. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith Yahweh. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, shall remain before me, saith Yahweh. And this is allegorical also. So shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Yahweh. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So we see that the children of Israel would be dispersed, Isaiah chapter 66. We see where they would be dispersed to, and those places are all identifiable. That's where the Saxon nations appear shortly thereafter, the Germanic people. And we see that they were also once again promised deliverance, and they, that they would bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. This promise, as Isaiah records it, is to all the brethren, as it states in verse 20. Yahweh said in Amos 9.9, For lo, I will command, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. This is when that sifting occurred, when the children of Israel were taken captive into all the nations of Mesopotamia, the cities of the Medes, into the lands of Persia and the lands of Assyria, which is Pul here in Isaiah, and Tubal, which is around the Black Sea, as the Greeks attest. And that's where we see the Scythians and the Chimerians arise from a short time later. This is when that sifting occurred that we see in Amos 9.9. Verse 24 states of those left behind in Palestine, those who were disobedient and transgressed against Yahweh, that their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. But if Yahweh tells the Isaiah here in this passage that the dispersed of Israel shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto Yahweh, then those who transgressed are set in contradistinction to all his brethren. They cannot truly be his brethren. In the context of the prophets, they can only be those same Canaanite, Edomite, bad fig Jews who were opposed to Christ in his ministry. They are the bastards, as we see in Jeremiah, the strange plant, and in Ezekiel, the sons of the Hittite, 
who transgressed against God and who caused the children of Israel to transgress against God. And they had a reason that the children of Israel had to be sifted to separate the tares from the wheat at that time. That their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh, tells us that we shall forever remember their wickedness. But that, there's, but that their destruction is guaranteed to be eternal. The phrase all flesh, as it is evident in Joel 2.28 and in Luke 3.6, the phrase all flesh is an allegory for all of the children of Yahweh who are inhabiting fleshly bodies. The term all flesh does not include, if we read Joel chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3, it does not include beasts of the field or donkeys or asses or any of that. That is also an allegory for the children of Israel, all flesh with his spirit. Mark 9 verse 49 for all shall be salted with fire. The salt is good, but if the salt should become saltless, with what shall you season it? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another, not with the beasts of the field. The salt is an allegory for the children of Israel. As it is seen in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? The salt is also tried in the fire. As we see here, a play on words following the mention of the fires of Gehenna. The fire is the trials of this life which season the children of God, as described in 1 Peter 1.7, where he tells his readers that the test of your faith much more valuable than gold, which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So we see in Mark chapter 9 that Yahshua makes a comparison, quoting Isaiah, quoting Isaiah chapter 66, so long as we read all of Isaiah, which Christ is quoting from. It is not a threat to send Israelites to hell where it says where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Rather, Isaiah is talking about the bad figs. Isaiah is talking about the bad trees that can't produce good fruit. The worm is an allegory for decay. It doesn't have anything to do with eternal punishment. It has everything to do with eternal non-existence, eternal destruction. That is the future for all of those who oppose the children of Israel, for all of those races who oppose God for all of those races who exist in violation of his law of kind after kind. 
it can be shown historically that all non-Israelites are destined for the lake of fire. Thank you for listening tonight. As I said at the beginning of this program, Matthew Watt will fill in for me next Friday. I will also have a substitute, I pray, for next Saturday. I I would announce it, but I'm not 100% sure of who it's going to be yet. I'm still waiting for a verification. And and, um, hopefully I I think I have a... um, Another person lined up if if the first person that I asked can't make it. Again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks with Mark chapter 10. Praise Yahweh, and good night.